now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. Just Science, funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, interviewed Lindsay Glicksberg, a PhD student from Sam Houston State University. Glicksberg's NIJ-funded research presents a validated method for the quantification of 22 synthetic cathinones in urine and blood using liquid chromatography coupled with quadrupole time of flight mass spectrometry. The use of bath salts has escalated according to the National Forensic Laboratory Information System. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Welcome to Just Science, the podcast of the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. We're here as part of our series from the American Academy of Forensic Sciences meeting in New Orleans, Louisiana. It is February of 2017. The NIJ Research and Development Symposium occurred earlier this week, and we're having a great time talking to some of the researchers who presented their work at the symposium. And today, we're very, very fortunate to have Lindsay Glicksberg of Sam Houston State University with us to talk about synthetic cathinones. I'm just gonna call them bath salts, Lindsay. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So you're at Sam Houston State and you're doing toxicology. Is there a broad program in toxicology at Sam Houston State? Tell me about where you're located and what you're doing. Sam Houston State originally had its only master's program and a year and a half ago, they got the approval to start the PhD in forensic science and I would have graduated in 2015 with my master's, but they were like, hey, we think you'd be a good candidate for the PhD program, applied for the candidacy and I applied and got accepted in the program. So hopefully we'll be graduating later this year, 2017. Sam Houston State, the program itself, it's multidisciplinary. Most people do focus on toxicology or uh, DNA biology, but it does have the resources to do anything in trace. If you want to do question documents, fingerprints, I think some people have done a little bit of explosives work, but most of the work is focused in either toxicology, drug chem, and or uh, DNA. Okay, so uh, there's a fairly strong contingent here from Sam Houston. You told me that there's actually, there was actually an alumni party from Sam Houston here at AFS earlier? Yeah, all of our professors are well known in the forensic science community. Uh, at the ACAD meetings this week, we had, I think it's like at least five or six student presentations, oral presentations, and then uh, four or five poster presentations. And the alumni reception last night was a huge hit. Current students were there, past students were there. We invite all of the vendors that we use to come. We invite friends that we've met throughout the day to come and they get our cute little name tag add-ons that say SHSU nerd cute genius out of the <laughs> periodic table of elements. So you got nerd and cute, but you didn't get genius. I decided I didn't want to, I didn't want to boast. <laughs> okay, oh, I'm sure that the, the it would fit, I'm sure. Uh, especially given how great the research is. So, so, um, are you the first person to really focus in on the cathinones at Sam Houston, or has there been some other work as well? Uh, there has been some other work. When I first got there, I knew I wanted to work with Dr. Kerrigan, and that the students working on the synthetic cathinones project would be graduating that year. And I'm like, hey, I really want to work with her. This project needs someone to take it over. And so that's kind of how I jumped in on the synthetic cathinone project. And then it just turned into my dissertation research as well. 
Okay. Well, yeah, I think the catheterons are interesting. It seems very foreign to me. When I think of bath salt, I think of Epsom salts. That's what I thought of at first. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was like, wait, there's stuff you put in your bath? Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, okay, yeah, no, yeah. not those. And you're not gonna, you're not gonna have very much, except for having lots of good magnesium in your system. Probably not gonna get a whole lot of high no. off of Epsom salts, I'm afraid. But these are actually different kinds of compounds that have been subject to drug abuse uh, over recent years, maybe the last 10 years, would you say? Over the last 10 years, yeah. They've been around for a while, and used, I want to say recently in the U.S., late 2000s, they've started appearing more frequently. So what did, do you, what were they, chemically, what do they relate to closest? Methamphetamine, ecstasy. Mm -hmm. um, those are the two that they're most structurally similar to and have similar effects of. Mm -hmm. So they're the legal high for those controlled substances. Right. So in some respects, they're kind of like the synthetic cannabinoids, but with a different kind of approach from the perspective of what kind of high you're going to try yes. to get. You know, meth has a terrible reputation with respect to both its addictiveness and also just how it just messes up somebody's body. Are the cathinones similar in terms of effects? Uh, unfortunately, I have not reviewed much of my uh, pharmacology on cathinones lately, but I don't think there's been enough research done yet or documentation on like long-term effects as you would mm -hmm. see in like methamphetamine how it destroys your body over time. I don't think that is available for synthetic cathinones but can be as potent as the methamphetamine uh, depending on which one of the numerous out there that you can get. I was really struck by just the sheer number of them. I mean we're very used to again the wide variety of cannabinoids. I mean it's just amazing because there's different classes now too of cannabinoids. But you had like 10 or 20 cathinones that you identified. We had 22, right? but if you look on the literature, there's over, what was it, my report said 35 identified in 2015. There were 42 in 2014. So just depending on how you synthesize them and what you're trying to add on to that base chemical structure, you can make uh, numerous different ones. Are there natural divisions among the cathinones chemically? Are there particular families of cathinones to look at, or are they pretty much variations on the same theme? I split them up into four groups. To, I'm not sure if other people have done that, but I do that for my research. I, I have 22 and I split them up to four different groups. Mm -hmm. Ones that have functional groups on the ring, ones that don't have the functional groups on the ring. The methylene dioxy group, the benzylic ring, would give you your ones that are most similar to your MDMA. Mm -hmm. And there's the tertiary amines that we have with that pyrrolidine group on the nitrogen. So those are my four groups. I don't okay. know if anyone else out there has ever tried to subcategorize them. No, that seems like a very natural division. But that's how I did it. That's... Kept it straight in my mind. So you focused in on 22. Do those 22 cut across all four of those types? Or? They do. That's why we chose them. They were commercially available at the time when mm -hmm. the, this research began. I'm sure now that there'd be numerous more that I could add or would have been able to add, but at the time this started, those were the ones that we could get commercially. Now, they're all available legally? Legally, no. Okay. So at RTI, we do an awful lot of toxicology work, of course, and they're very particular things that we have to uh, conform to for, you know, for scheduled substances. Yes. So the synthetic cathinones all fall under the same kind of, of regulation as regulated substances in that regard, or has the regulation not caught up with the cathinones at this point? Um, I know we do have uh, licenses to get certain reference materials from our vendors. That's I think all done administratively that I don't really see. Okay, that's fair enough. <laughs> I say I need to purchase this and they'll say we can purchase this for you because they've already done all that paperwork and have the contracts. Okay, so tell me what's the focus of your work on the cathinones? What are you trying to do in, in examining the cathinones? Uh, we're just looking at their stability because they're new and there's not much known about them. In just, urine and blood? In or? urine and blood. We're looking how long uh, these drugs will remain stable 
Toxicology has their thresholds, what they consider like acceptable. In all your validations, it's like plus or minus 20% of what you expect. So I do a validation. If I put 100 nanograms of this drug in my sample, I should expect to get 100 nanograms back, plus or minus 20%. And so we considered, after we've stored our samples, we consider them unstable if we diverge from 20%. So if I start seeing 80 nanograms per mil, 70 nanograms per mil, that's when we're thinking that they're, we're considering them unstable. This is all that's not known on the cathinones. And mm -hmm. as my presentation said, sometimes toxicology casework can sit in backlogs for days, weeks, months prior to analysis. And if you have a drug in your concentration and you don't look at that sample for two months, is that drug going to be at that concentration still or is it going to have decreased over time? So what, what's the breadth of what you looked at? Did you look at uh, also storage condition? Yeah, we looked at four temperatures, frozen or refrigerated, which are going to be your most common temperatures in a mm. crime lab. Frozen is for long-term sample storage. And then refrigerators, where you're going to store all, mostly all your samples. And then ambient temperature, saying like it was left out on a bench top. And an elevated temperature at 90 degrees Fahrenheit, <clears throat> which is kind of just representative, oh, if you're transporting the sample and maybe got not that I say this is happening, but get left in a car, or there's problems transporting. Everyone's had packages get delayed. What happens yes. if these samples get delayed and it's exposed to these hot temperatures? Sure. Did you look at any stabilization matrices? I mean, there's a whole art around the things that are put into, for example, urine samples to stabilize the uh, different elements of like cocaine or marijuana or heroin in order to address this problem. Did you look at any of those issues I actually had that question asked me by a student when I gave this presentation to the master's students. And unless you know what you're looking for, like in my conclusions, that it's mostly pH dependence. And someone mm -hmm. asked me, oh, can you add something to change the pH? No, you could buffer well, it or something. You yeah. could buffer it, but you don't know what else is in there. Mm -hmm. So if you buffer it, if you try to make it acidic, because these drugs are most stable and acidic, well, if there's a drug in there that's unstable and acidic, well, you just lost your drug that's mm -hmm. unstable in an acidic matrix. So mm -hmm. unless you know what you're looking for, you've done the screening tests and you've concluded that there's something else in there, it's not wise to try to uh, buffer, or try to make these drugs more stable. Mm -hmm. A lot of the times, your first time looking at these is when you analyze it, maybe a day or two or weeks or months later. You're not analyzing right then and there as you take the sample. It's gonna sit there for a while. Now, did you look at it in actual urine and blood or did you use uh, simulants or synthetic? No, actual urine and blood. During the validation of or my method, we did get to use student participation in urine. Sure, yeah. But when you're looking for a year-long stability study and you're realizing, I need two liters of urine, that's uh -huh. a lot for the students to contribute. We uh, purchased our urine from a reputable drug-free uh -huh. area. And then for the blood, it's bovine blood. Not human okay. blood, but it's uh, No, that's perfectly reasonable. Yeah. And, and uh, easier way to get drug-free is from bovine blood. Yeah, so I did have one professor, so when I was talking out in the hallway, I'm like, yeah, I need to get blood for my project. And so I was like, oh, I can donate. And I'm like, I don't think you want to donate as much blood as I need right now. <laughs> right. I don't know if you know, but RTI actually, one of our side businesses, we always have a side business, is we sell commercially an awful lot of uh, toxicology QA samples. Okay. And, and so we collect gallons of urine at a time. And funny, we had, a few months ago, we had a couple of high school kids come in for a, you know, a day learning about forensic science. And we had them pouring urine all day long. It was great. 
but it uh, smells after a while. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's not very pleasant. I didn't, yeah. really, I, care, I didn't really care to open up my elevated samples after a month or two of storage. No, yeah, that's that would be pretty nasty. So you looked at the 22 uh, cathodones. You were looking at stability at the four temperatures with the two matrices. You know, in general, what would you say you found as part of your study? Uh, really confirmed what you might expect or what people have given in the literature that they are more stable at the acidic pH, so a pH of 4 or 5, very unstable at the basic pHs of 8, 9, and that there's a temperature dependence, as you might expect, that they're going to disappear and become unstable a lot faster at the elevated and ambient temperature. But the biggest thing that we like to note in this research is that we've really proven that there's a lot of structural dependence on the stability of these drugs and that we're hoping that this will help predict the stability of future synthetic cathinones that are still being either synthesized or being identified now that aren't included in my 22. Because they're emerging basically one a week, Ex right? Yeah. So tell me about that. So you mentioned your four different families, you know, your functionalized ring versus non and so on. Is it related to the class or are there other structural elements that are affecting the stability? For what I can see is related to the class, so the methylene dioxy type and with that big pralidine group on the nitrogen, it's just harder to kind of break that structure up. There's mm -hmm. more holding it together. There's less ways that other elements in the urine and the blood can kind of attack at that structure. Whereas my unsubstituted and my ring substituted, which are my most unstable, they're much more open. It's much more easy to form. I'm terrible at organic chemistry, so I'm sure I'm going to use the wrong words. But it's You're much... better than me. I'm, t <laughs> I'm way worse, I'm sure. Because those structures are so open, it's much easier for other parts of the urine and blood to come in there and kind of break those structures apart. So this is your PhD thesis, right? Part of it, yeah. So part of it. So tell me more about what other research you all are doing in cathinones and how that's relating to the stability issue. The next part that I'm currently working on is identifying degradation products. So uh, the best example is uh, cocaine. A lot of times you don't see the parent cocaine in drug samples because the half-life is so short and it uh, metabolizes quickly. But you know cocaine was there because you find phenzelegonine right. as its uh, metabolite. Well, we're looking for breakdown products. So as these samples sit in urine and they're, they're obviously getting broken down into something because the concentration is changing, what are they breaking down into? And can you identify those and say that, oh, because I see this molecule in the urine later on is indicative that a synthetic cathinone was once in the sample. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the next part of my research that's currently ongoing. Okay, is that part of the NIJ grant as it well? It is part of the NIJ grant as well. Okay. How does this relate to the metabolism mm -hmm. of the cathinones? I mean, it's, that's obviously a, a more complex kind of process, the, the metabolism of the cathinones. Have you looked at, the, looked at that issue at all? Or? There is a, the literature on the metabolism of synthetic cathinones, and I did use some of those typical metabolic pathways to try to predict what mm -hmm. kind of compounds I might see in breakdown. Mm -hmm. But the metabolic breakdown is done using enzymes, so it's a little more predictive of, okay, you know, there's certain pathways that metabolic breakdown takes. Mm -hmm. the degradation products, on the other hand, might follow some of those pathways, might not. It's not the mechanism for some of these breakdowns isn't really understood. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily done by an enzyme or by a, um, a bacteria. So hopefully some of the metabolic pathways that I've seen will help me identify some of the breakdowns, but it's a little more hit or miss. So how did you do your actual analytical chemistry? So how did you do, was this uh, LC-MS? Uh, LC-QTOF-MS. Okay. So we're using one of the high resolution mass spectrometry methods. 
because it's the mass accuracy of this instrument, gives us very limited number of potential molecular formulas that at each peak in our mass spectra could be. Mm -hmm. So that's how we're hoping that we'll be able to more easily identify our breakdown products. So when we see a mass that has four decimal places, only so many chemical structures right. can make that with all the different isotopes and uh, So you don't need to do, waves. you haven't done tandem mass spec to try I, to go Yeah, we were hoping to maybe do tandem mass spec in the same time and really beef up this project, but our LC tandem was not up and running at that point. Right, and you feel pretty confident that you're able to identify the mass fragments Yes. By because the toffs are amazing. I'm an old toff okay. guy, and I've built a few over the years. So, long time ago. So, what do you think in terms of where you see things heading with respect to the cathinones from an analytical perspective? Where do you see the uh, the field needing to move? Do you think that uh, you know being able to do the LCMSMS or LCMS in the in the in the crime lab is going to be sufficient? Do you think that there's other opportunities here? Where do you think research needs to go? I think the LCs are going to be our best bet for the cathinones. The only problem is, is can we be able to stay ahead of people making them? Mm -hmm. There's new ones every year and every time they're like, oh, this one doesn't give me the effect that I want. They stop using it and introduce new ones. Mm -hmm. And it's that cat and mouse game between the toxicologists and the drug users. They're making things faster than we can develop methods to detect them and get their reports out with these cathinones that are disseminated fast enough for other labs to start detecting them. Okay. Um, so really we just need to work on communication between labs and really focus on getting detection methods and screening methods out there. I know that your thesis is going to be amazing. It's going to just land and you know, it's going to be great. You think you're going to do it this coming spring or the following spring? Or We're when? hopefully aiming for summer okay. at the latest, maybe December. Fingers crossed. Most of my benchtop lab work is done. So uh -huh. Now it's just sitting in front of the computer and doing that data crunching and trying to identify segregation products and then getting all the writing done. Is this meeting your first report out of your results? Have you had any other papers or presentations? We published the validation paper for urine and blood. Uh, that got accepted this past fall, printed in the Journal of Chromatography B. I had presented that validation paper or as a poster at SOFT in 2015. This mm -hmm. past soft meeting in 2016, I did present the urine stability. So mm -hmm. I was very happy to be able to present both the urine and blood at the NIJ symposium. And then I just presented the blood stability today for the academy meeting. Okay. And then hopefully in the next few months, we'll get the papers out for blood and urine stability. Sure. And then after that, after we'll that, have a whole set of degradation. Have, yep. You're gonna, yeah, that'll be a very nice set of work. And I hope that we'll be able to uh, give people links to all of the different work that you've been able to put in and, and other work that's relevant at Sam Houston State University with respect to toxicology in particular yep. uh, for people to be able to look at this in, in more detail. So what do you think you're going to do after your PhD? Uh, do you want to do you want to be in the crime lab or do you want to go towards research or what do you want to do? I definitely want to go into crime lab. Maybe one day teach but I definitely want to sit at the bench, do that casework, be part of the criminal justice system and not just learn about it and uh, do some research. I really want to be in the lab itself. You want to do that in Texas? Are you from Texas? I'm not from Texas. I'm from the Chicago area. Okay. I am not. There's crime in both there, places. Yes. <laughs> definitely is definitely crime in Chicago. <laughs> now, I'm not location specific. I will go where there's a job. Okay. Well, hopefully we'll give you some exposure so that there'll be some crime labs just anxious to have you. We'll see what happens. Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast. It's very informative, very uh, good research on an emerging area, and uh, wish you all the best. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. 
Next week on Just Science, we will discuss multivariate postmortem interval estimation with Dr. Jeffrey Wells and Dr. Lynn Lamont. Just Science will wrap its 2017 NIJ R&D Symposium special release season with Dr. Rob Mayer, who will discuss his research with gunshot acoustics. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.